everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Here I am. He, he's here. <laughs> this is episode 126. This is our year-end review slash 2021 kickoff. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Happy New Year. This is, I think, our first time actually talking outside of text since uh, we've rolled over into 2021. Um, the idea was we're going to do like a best of list. So a best of list of like the past year, uh, talk about some stuff that we've done and some stuff we're going to do in the future. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's useful. I know it's not another programming podcast. People really seem to be clamoring for that. Although some interesting data suggests that people may actually not want a programming podcast. We'll get to that shortly, but first Austin, uh, how was your new year's? Uh, it was uh, generally uneventful, I would say. But fortunately, uh, Lorraine has been able to take leave from work on her end out in Louisiana. So she came to Texas to visit. So I got to see her, which is good. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that Wait, was a who's, treat. Who's Lorraine? <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, I went to my brother's place. He's in my bubble. Uh, we watched the new year. And, and you know, at 12.05, I was, I was gone. I just, oh, on my way home, get those, get that sleep in. I mean, it's not the same as la- uh, 2019 when we were in Miami. Um, yeah, that was a, that was an experience. Uh, Lauren and I were talking about that, that that's probably like a, you know, maybe not going to be our routine annual <laughs> sort of party scene that we would go to, but uh, yeah, it, was, it was worth the experience once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, it's just, uh, you know, it's funny because that was January. I mean, technically it's January, 2020. And then now looking back, it's like, well, how irresponsible of us. <laughs> no, it was a good time. And uh, that pizza at like 2 a.m. was uh, totes worth it. Um, okay. So, yeah, New Year's was cool. Was cool. This is being recorded on a Saturday early in the morning because Austin doesn't care about my well-being. Um, we're going to get into this best of list here shortly. But first, I feel like we got to talk about what we've been working on. Yeah. I mean, I know you've been – you're on there, I feel like, on a daily basis, but I have been just grinding away at this nutrition book, which is, I just like I said before we came on, we started recording, I, I don't know that any one person is qualified to write a, this uh, nutrition book. And I feel like the fact that so many people have indicates like a profound lack of knowledge <laughs> of all of the important things that go into uh, not only like the nuts and bolts, of, like nutrition science, but like behavioral change, adherence, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it's just a daunting task. And, yeah. I, and I think if you knew all that going in, you'd sit down and you say, you know, I'm probably gonna need some outside con- counsel. And if you don't say that, it's like, what are you selling? Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I uh, view that is I think it's a consequence of uh, our natural tendency to favor reductionism as a way to better or to to even attempt to understand uh, complicated things. And so a lot of folks take that uh, reductionism way too far and uh, it generates a nice, simple narrative, just like we've talked about in other contexts, like, you know, the, the, the pain side, it's like you do this uh, extreme reductionism and then you come away with a nice, simple narrative, like, Oh, just like, don't bend your back and you'll be great or something like that. And then, you know, you apply the same thing in the nutrition realm and then you can end up with, um, you know, with, uh, an overly simplistic, uh, narrative about how to go about this, um, that is, uh, reductionist to the point of being wrong in a, you know, or, or, or not necessarily 
to being wrong, but to being unhelpful to people, which is where you end up seeing a lot of criticism of like just telling people, oh, yeah, just eat less and move more. And it's like if that was sufficient for like a nutrition book and or to like fix the global problems that we have, <laughs> you know, we would have yeah. seen uh, effectiveness by now. But I think, you know, you sent me an initial draft and I started to uh, provide some some criticisms and then we started to work through uh, some of those things. And, and basically, yeah, that was that was one of my um, uh, takeaways early on. I, I, I remember saying, like, you know, we're going to end up uh, reading uh, so much and writing so much uh, about all these topics that by the end of the process, we're going to come away feeling like, oh, we're completely unqualified, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, not necessarily entirely uh, accurate. But uh, uh, to your point, it does uh, reflect how complicated of a thing this is. And, um, you know, this this thing that all of us do, i.e. eating food is super, super complex. Uh, and if you wanted to do a comprehensive thorough treatment, you would definitely need input across a broad range of disciplines to ad adequately capture kind of the complexity that's involved in human, you know, eating patterns from the typical breakdown that we've talked about, you know, the biological physio physiology standpoint, psychosocial factors, environmental, cultural, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and particularly when you start getting into this sort of like behavioral psychology thing like why do people do what they do with respect to dietary patterns or like you know why do some people become obese whereas others remain lean and then you're like okay i'm down a whole nother rabbit hole i'm reading studies on mice who got weights implanted in their stomachs and then they spontaneously start losing weight why am i here <laughs> it's yeah, like right. yeah but uh no it's been super interesting um right now the text is about it's almost 180 pages before references, I, my, the reference count just crossed 500 yesterday. So I suspect by the end we'll be north of 200 pages, close to 600 citations, which doesn't actually tell you how like good the thing is, but it, it does tell you how steeped in the scientific literature it is, which should be useful for people who are interested in like, Hey, this is what science actually says currently about these things. If you just want me to make up, I mean, I could tell you a fairy tale. I could write this book <laughs> sans any scientific resources and you just take it at face value. I think that's what, uh, you know, most people do in this, in this, in this realm, but um, yeah, it's going to be good. I think the, and the first, the idea is that the first part of the book is like a practical, you know, do these things or try to do these things or implement these strategies to like make the dietary pattern change, um, you know, from a health and performance standpoint. And then the second part, which is, it is more than half the book. Um, is just like the actual science on all of that stuff, the, the why behind the what, if you will. Uh, and then, then on top of that, there's the actual template, which is like a user-friendly tool to like get some hard recommendations in front of a person's face. So, yeah, I think it's always tricky, you know, for us to straddle the, the, you know, the, the lay public, uh, audience and, um, putting out, you know, recommendations that are going to be useful from a public health standpoint, but also uh, providing information that some of the more clinician type, some of the more scientifically minded folks are interested in. And so um, I think that's been uh, one aim of the project. And what I definitely envision is that this is going to be like a multi revision edition sort of deal in the future. Like this first uh, version that comes out is going to require kind of ongoing work and updating and revision and editing kind of over time um, is, is what I anticipate happening uh, as we uh, learn more or as we go back over it and, you know, want to refine the the messages and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. Yep. It'll get, it'll keep getting better and bigger and probably just end up being like a formal 
not a textbook, but like a, you know, we'll actually release it as a, you know, paperback or hardback in addition to like Kindle and audiobook and uh, ebook thing. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be great. Uh, this is the book that I, I wish existed like when I first got into this stuff, because it, when you, when you start getting into nutrition, I, I, I know that it's like, at least if anybody's like me, it's fascinating. You're like learning about the connection between, you know, dietary patterns and health and dietary patterns of performance. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. This is such like a big lever we could pull. And it's like, okay, but how does it all work? And like, how do we know it works that way? Right. And so you're, you're what you're really looking for is like an evidence-based review on the the connections here. And uh, that doesn't exist. Because when people ask me, they're like, oh, what book should I buy to learn about nutrition? And I'm like, well, you can buy like, you know, there's a bunch of nutrition texts out there that are used in various graduate programs, but they're not going to teach you what you want to know here. They're going to teach you more of the fundamental like biochemistry underlying human nutrition. And then you're going to need another book for, you know, sports performance and related to nutrition, which I would argue is not up to date because that stuff changes so rapidly. And then you're going to need a behavioral change book. And then you're going to, and then you're going to need to have some medical training. It's like it, you, you can't, you couldn't find this text before because it didn't exist because it spanned so many different fields. And uh, yeah, well, anyway, Barbell Medicine is bringing it to you. And uh, as I said, yeah, as I said last time, I'll be happier than anyone when this thing's done. I just, <laughs> I'm going on vacation. That's the, that's the idea. Okay. We're going to start our, our best of barbell medicine list. First off, we're going to cover some history about barbell medicine uh, from this past year. So our podcast, the podcast you're listening to now, which I, I think a few episodes ago, I thought I was going to rebrand it, rename it to the barbell medicine radio. So I feel like I need to start 2021. That's my resolution. Instead of a barbell medicine podcast, it's going to be the barbell medicine radio. We need like a, we need like a four letter acronym, like a station identification thing. <laughs> like welcome back to BBMR. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll workshop it. In any case, uh, in 2020, we had just over a million downloads, which, you know, it's not the most, but it's pretty good for us. Uh, we just crossed 2 million, uh, downloads like lifetime. So that's good. Anyway, I, I wasn't going to share you the outline here because I wanted to just ask you, you know, like, what do you think the most downloaded episode was? So before seeing this, I'm, I'm going to guess you were, you were going to, you would say something about programming. Yeah. I mean, and, and also probably lean towards one of the older ones just because of the effect of time and like people have more time to go back and download stuff that looked interesting to them in the past compared to more recent things, but yes. apparently not. No. Uh, so our podcast reflects the worldwide the global pandemic, effectively all of the, the, our top three episodes for downloads were related to COVID-19. So our number one streamed and downloaded podcast is our one from, I believe it was in March when, uh, Dr. Askin and then you and I all weighed in on COVID-19 when it was like kind of first coming to America. Yeah. And then the second one is the exercise in the immune system, which is not directly related to COVID-19, but it's obvious why that was interesting to people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. And then the third most downloaded podcast was the COVID-19 vaccine, which I mean, it was two weeks ago. Yeah. So yeah. I think we got a lot, a, a nice little social bump because people were sharing it, um, which is great. Please continue to do that. But uh, yeah, I thought, you know, because people say they're like, ah, oh, we want a programming episode. It's like, well, apparently you just want more COVID info. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, compared to let's do an hour talking about, you know, sets of four versus sets of five. But <laughs> yeah, we, we just have a little debate. The exercise, um, the exercise piece is uh, uh, interesting, though, in the context of infection and immunity. That's kind of uh, made a comeback as far as um, people asking me some questions about it, because there have been some guidelines um, put out. Uh, I think one set was published in JAMA about like return to exercise uh, you know, after COVID and there, um, tons of very specific, you know, testing recommendations and not doing any sort of activity until like you're cleared by a cardiologist and all this stuff. And, and people are asking my opinion on it. And I stand by the stuff we met, we said in our podcast before these yep. guidelines that have been coming out are completely made up. Um, and there was a study done earlier in the year where they took, I think it was like some college athletes of some sort who had, uh, had the infection and they, decided just as part of their study to do cardiac MRIs on them. And sure enough, they found some evidence of like tissue changes in the, in the muscle of their uh, hearts. And they said, Oh no, this means that they're having myocarditis from COVID and they need to not exercise, you know, until further clearance. And and of course, most of these individuals were had no symptoms or no, you know, reason for specific concern around that. And this has led to a bunch of other discussion about this stuff. I even had a friend uh, an old friend who who had COVID, it was like minimally symptomatic to, uh, and that went away and they felt completely normal, but they were being told like not to do anything until they saw a cardiologist, which is ridiculous <laughs> in my yeah. opinion. Um, and, and so uh, it, it's interesting, you know, that people can come out with like clinical guidelines on stuff when they don't necessarily like have a mandate to do so. Um, yeah, right, right, like yeah. kind of making, making stuff up uh, on that front. And uh, you could probably do cardiac MRIs on people after all sorts of infections, uh, common cold or flu or any other infection, and you'd probably see some changes and you could come out with, you know, very specific, extensive guidelines that wouldn't necessarily be supported. So as of now, uh, where we're at, because uh, I anticipate I'm going to continue getting these questions in the DMs and emails and things like that, um, I stand by what we said in our exercise and the immune system podcast. Yep. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting, though, when people do come up with recommendations without like a formal charge and without an evidence base to like really make substantial recommendations from because it's like if you don't, you know, yeah, there's this one study or maybe maybe two now where they did the cardiac MRIs and, you know, people post COVID, but prior to like engaging in exercise, <laughs> like returning to sport. And it's like, okay, that you're, you're going to come up with recommendations based off that. I mean, you can you can do it if if asked by you know some national international organization, but then in the like byline it has to say yeah we just made this up yeah in for, in formal terms like <laughs> this is a consensus statement you know based on very limited evidence you know which which would be fine although most people would probably selectively ignore that upon seeing the title, uh, but we would read it you know and be like okay so they just made these up and uh, yeah I think if you're super risk averse. It, it makes sense to me. I can understand it. On the other hand, I think uh, I can only understand it through the lens of like not not being completely aware of all the benefits of exercise and regular physical activity in, in comparison to the risks of being sedentary and right. not participating. So it's like if I just was aware of like the medical slant on things – I can understand that sort of calculus, the risk benefit calculus probably tips you in favor of like being risk averse with respect to returning to activity. But you, if you also know the benefits of exercise and physical activity, you're kind of like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's probably a push at worst, but more likely to be beneficial from returning to sport 
provided a person doesn't have additional risk factors or, you know, active symptomology. Yep. Man. So it's almost like a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Only on the internet. All right. So those are top three on podcasts. Again, this whole thing was going to be great with me just asking you because I, you know, I was just always curious to what you think about barbell medicine. I just really want your approval. No. Uh, <laughs> so on Instagram, this is the barbell medicine Instagram account. We uh, looked at our top three posts by likes in 2020. Uh, promisingly, our number one post based on likes was about the contribution of age to training adaptations and how, you know, doesn't really, doesn't really play into that. Uh, it's a, it's a picture of a, uh, older gentleman squatting in Brooklyn. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 if I had to guess, I probably would have picked something related to your eyes popping out of your head yeah, or sure. like <laughs> something, something else rather than just this relatively, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a fine picture. I mean, Tom is basically, he's like a professional photographer <laughs> and he, it's a great picture and the caption is great. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't have expected that, but just in case you missed that post, the idea is that your, your age has very little predictive power over your training adaptations. And it, to put it in very, very simple terms, it doesn't matter how old you are with respect to the gains you're getting from exercise. Older individuals are going to gain similar amounts of hypertrophy to, and muscular strength and cardiorespiratory fitness, et cetera, compared to younger individuals. And that's, that's that to be clear on that, you're because uh, people will immediately say, well, that's obviously wrong. The comparisons that you have to make in these situations are relative improvements compared to where you start. So if one person at one uh, age or demographic population uh, is going to put 20%, uh, you know, improvement on their muscle mass or on their squat or whatever compared to where they started, um, that on average is going to be similar between them versus, uh, versus a younger individual. Even if the younger individual makes uh, larger improvements in absolute terms, conversely, it's also possible for a younger person to, you know, start out with less strength and less muscle and they may make actually less absolute improvement compared to the older person who maybe has some fortunate genetic stock or something like that. And they're starting from a higher baseline and can make, you know, large, uh, the same relative improvement, but bigger absolute improvements. So that's kind of the big thread, whether we're talking about age or sex or various other demographic factors is that we don't have clear reason to look at somebody who's older versus younger and to say, oh, well, you're obviously not going to get good results just solely because of your age. Rather, we expect you're going to do just fine and then train you and see how you do. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, that's, that's the thing. It's like making, uh, like prophylactic changes to somebody's programming or worse, giving them negative expectations based on some, you know, their age or sex or, or whatever. Like that just, that just shows me that a person is probably not well versed in the actual evidence here. And then also like probably would benefit from some communications training because <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> Oh, well you're a woman. So, you know, you can't get big and strong. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> Oh, ultimate cringe. Ultimate cringe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and I don't think people are doing this intentionally. I think they, what they, how they, they probably think they're setting the expectations appropriately. So that way people, you know, aren't disappointed. And it's like, yeah, I, but you, you're actually negatively affecting these people by giving them those expectations. You're priming them in a negative way. And, 10 out of 10 would avoid, 
would avoid. Agree. Uh, yep. Our second most popular Instagram post on the Barbell Medicine account was for Alan Thrall's birthday, which is actually not surprising to me. I mean, he's so handsome <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and well-spoken and I, we're really fortunate to have him. Big, big crush on Alan Thrall. Don't tell him. <laughs> uh, our third most popular Instagram post was of a jelly donut. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Tom really has a way of getting the people going. <laughs> yes. But, you know, and I, and I guess, again, if I if I had all the posts laid out in front of me and I was trying to predict which one is going to be – is that the algorithm is going to pick up, I'm thinking, all right, things that are polarizing, controversial, or, you know, the picture is very uh, provocative. Yes. A jelly donut is not a provocative picture. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just not. But the topic itself is polarizing, particularly in the strength and conditioning field. It's like, well – you know, if there's something wrong with your disc, and I say wrong in quotations, if I can look at something on a on advanced imaging like an MRI and see that something's there's an issue with your disc, uh, that means you're going to have pain. And then, you know, invariably, you know what the comments look like. People ac- are accuse us of being technique nihilists and all sorts of stuff in the pockets of like big behavioral change and self-efficacy. <laughs> I don't know. Thing existed. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so to be clear, like our view is that the imaging findings of, you know, herniation or other sort of quote unquote abnormality. Um, so anything that like a, the radiologist would pick up on imaging that doesn't reliably correlate to pain and dysfunction. Uh, in most cases, in particular, when we're talking about um, <clears throat> the back. In fact, a lot some of these changes can be like uh, what are called stress reactions, like intermediate findings between like while adaptations are actually occurring. So there are studies in youth athletes, for example, uh, I believe it's it's either tennis or lacrosse, or it's rugby and lacrosse. That's something like that, um, where they did MRIs on these individuals like after uh, games um, for a series a span of time, and they would see these what looked like, you know, inflammatory spots on their intervertebral discs. But uh, during the off season, they repeated the scans and it just, uh, what appeared to happen was thickening of certain aspects of the disc, which they, the authors actually concluded were adaptive sort of responses to their sport, which is, we see all the time in other tissues and other structures. Um, but you know, obviously that doesn't always, that's, you know, a herniation is not an adaptive process, uh, but it doesn't also reliably correlate with low back pain. And so that's kind of the idea behind this, this post and, uh, yeah, it got the people going. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Unsurprising, unsurprising. Why do you think that people hold on to that idea though? I mean, because if you think about it, if you hold on to that idea, like if you're like, uh, structure problem, bad pain, right? You're just making this connection that, that kind of limits you because you can't get better. You can't heal quote unquote, you can't return this to, to you know, normal function until the structure is repaired compared to the alternative view where it's like, yeah, they're probably not related. That's in my view is more empowering. So if you got to pick which thing you believed, the second one seems a little bit more enticing to me. I don't know. Why do you think people hold on to that first one? Yeah, I mean, you're that that last thing you said there is kind of interesting. Like, if you got to pick the thing that you believed, which uh, <laughs> opens up opens up the whole rabbit hole of like you know choice and how much you're in control of these things and free will and stuff like that. But also, like, there's the side of 
just the the the, the social uh, kind of understanding and the narratives that are passed down, passed between people, passed between you know people in positions of authority like healthcare professionals and coaches to lay people. Um, the ads that you see every day for like things to fix your back pain. It's just like we're constantly bombarded by all this stuff and uh, gets taken in to our, uh, you know, primitive uh, uh, primate brains. And we have a exceptionally difficult time, uh, you know, separating our personal identities, our our historical uh, experiences, our pride, our um, or especially if we are the people in positions of authority who have doled out this advice, we're going to be especially reluctant to change our minds on it because then that would require us to admit that we've been uh, wrong and giving out bad advice for potentially, you know, years to, to decades in, in some cases, or perhaps we have an entire uh, professional business or social media account with millions of followers that's designed around a particular <laughs> uh, uh, belief uh, or, uh, or, or uh, movement even, and, uh, and using that to deliver these sorts of narratives, it's going to be super hard to change your mind. Um, that old line about, you know, it's difficult to get someone to change their mind if their salary depends on them not or to understand something if their salary depends on them not understanding it. Um, so yeah, super difficult. And belief change is um, at least as difficult as behavior change, I think. Um, I struggle to, uh, to find um, optimism on that front as far as like, you know, widespread belief change on the matter. But I think that gradually we're chipping away at it bit by bit. Um, we have uh, other friends and colleagues in this scene who are helping us kind of uh, with delivering these same messages. We have um, followers and people who are coming up in the coaching scene who are learning this stuff early on rather than taking, you know, many years to, to learn it that uh, after the fact, and they're going to help us augment and spread these ideas. And so hopefully, you know, little by little, we can start to make some improvements there. But I think it's going to take, um, as with most, uh, most things, it's going to take a long time, and it's going to take some some dinosaurs to, to die off before some of these messages finally go away. <laughs> I First, your uh, example was oddly specific. So yeah. <laughs> I'm sure no, <laughs> no one probably picked up on that. But I I remember when I was getting into medicine and uh, I, I not like just casually getting into medicine, but um, when I started medical school, uh, this was before Prasad's sort of overview on like medical change and medical reversals came out. I mean, yeah. obviously before, but um, it was a similar sort of theme talking about why do people hold on to non-evidence-based treatments and, you know, non-evidence-based clinical practices, stuff like that. Uh, and I, there was a line in there similar to what you just said about the dinosaurs needing to die off. And uh, quite morbidly, the the author said something of like, we just need a bad flu. And I was <laughs> oh, <gosh>. like, <laughs> Yikes. did not age well. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. Let's move to the YouTubes. All right. So, uh, this past year was actually pretty good for the tubes. Uh, I took a little hiatus in there as far as uploading stuff uh, due to some other projects. And uh, to be clear, I, I'm the only one making the YouTube videos or the podcast. I know what you're thinking, like Feigenbaum, you're, you know, get ahead of barbell medicine, just hire somebody to do this. Here's the thing. I like it. I like doing this stuff. It's fun. It's like my creative outlet. On the other hand, if I get busy sometimes, you know, it's not going to happen. I, that's that's where we're at. Uh, maybe in 2021 that changes, but um, I do really like making videos and podcasts and stuff like that. It's just sometimes uh, my plate gets a little 
a little full. But we uploaded an, a bunch of videos. We had uh, one and a half million views, which for YouTubers, actual YouTubers who derive their salary from YouTube, that's not a lot. Uh, but for us, it was pretty good. We gained uh, over, uh, almost 30,000 subscribers. Uh, sorry, almost 20,000 subscribers, which is good. And again, I was going to ask you, Austin, what do you think that the, our most watched video was? But you already know what it is now. People wanted to see what it, what I eat in a day. And I, I, if I had to credit, like how how come there's so many views? It's probably probably because I don't have a shirt on on the thumbnail. I think that's the <laughs> that's the clickbaity thing. And they're like, wow, I yeah, I, I'm curious. What do you eat in a day? And it's <laughs> there. There's not a shouldn't be a lot of surprises in there with respect to dietary intake. Um, there's some nuggets of like nutrition knowledge in there, but the probably the biggest surprise there is that I don't actually eat as many calories to gain weight as people probably predict. So I think at that point I was only eating like 3,800 calories a day or 3,600, something like that. I'm about 205. I was, uh, I was trying to move up to the 231 weight class or 220 weight class, um, at the time. So I, you know, sit between 205 and 210 ish. And, uh, yeah, I was gaining weight at 3,600, 3,800 calories a day. And so people incorrectly predict that they need this massive calorie surplus to gain weight, which is not, typically true for most individuals, but there's obviously a big, um, inter-individual variation in the calorie surplus needed to actually change weight, which after having written this book is clear to me, um, and, and due to a number of sources. So for example, the fractional energy absorption. So basically how much stuff you're absorbing, uh, that you're eating changes and varies dramatically between individuals. Some folks are super efficient. 99% of everything they eat gets absorbed. And other people without malabsorption, when they're overfed, that absorption rate drops into the 80s, which is crazy. There's also compensatory physical activities like NEAT, non-exercise uh, activity thermogenesis, that change that varies markedly between individuals when they're fed the same amount of calories. Some people will move a lot more and some people move a lot less. Um uh, and uh, other changes in like the thermic effect of food, which is uh, how much energy it takes to digest, store, otherwise metabolize food varies wildly between individuals. And this is among even others. I mean, there's obviously more factors. And so you could give people the same, the, who are the same body weight, same age, same body composition, same, you know, amount of exercise that they're getting per day. You could give them the same diet and they're going to respond different, differently to it, which if you've listened to any of our programming podcasts, makes total sense. <laughs> it's just, just, there's just this inter-individual variation. Um, but yeah, people wanted to watch me eat, I guess, which I actually, if you're into like that ASMR stuff, it's not the video for you. I don't have like <laughs> my mouth mic'd up while I'm eating. <laughs> Thankfully, I think Austin would quit actually, if I did something like that. If I, if I mic'd myself up and was like, okay, now I'm going to be eating oatmeal. <laughs> well, and I think it's, I think it'd primarily be if it was uh, soup slurping that would be problematic. <laughs> that, that would but be there are I don't know if you've seen uh, you've seen uh, Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino's yeah. movie. Yeah, he's he's known for like miking, putting mics like in and near the the food and drink and stuff like that. There's a scene where she, the 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 guy's like putting some sugar in his coffee and stirring it, and the sounds are like ridiculous just because that's what he does, and it's actually very interesting the way he uh, plays with sound there. Yeah, not a big, not a big fan of uh, oratory acoustics with respect to eating or drinking. <laughs> not a big fan. Um, 
their second most watched video was the bench press prescription, which is good that we did that in 2018. So still, you know, still up there. Yeah. I, I did think that our, how to warm up on the deadlift or the squat. I thought those were going to like supersede that, but it turns out people just want to bench press. Additionally, you know, maybe they realized that <laughs> there's nothing special <laughs> to warming up. <laughs> yeah. Ideally. And then, yeah, the third most watched video was another oldie, but goodie, the truth about belts. Um, I, to, if you if you don't know what the truth about lifting belts are, <laughs> you can watch that video. Or yeah. quick summary: uh, lifting belts tend to improve the, the velocity of movement and decrease the uh, variation um, with respect to like like bar path, for example. Decrease some of the the deviations there. Um, it doesn't reduce activity of your trunk and core muscles, but rather it increases them. And to the extent that those are the training adaptations that you're looking for, belt would be useful. Also a super useful tool to use uh, for people who uh, may be dealing with some either fear of or active like back discomfort um, just because they feel a little bit more supported, which you could make an argument that increased contraction of the muscles around the, the spine, you know, that probably makes people feel a little bit more secure, even though that's a little reductionist and I don't know that I would fully subscribe to that, but if it gets people to exercise, that's cool. Sweet. Um, all right, let's move to our articles, our written stuff. If you, okay, before looking at this, Austin, what do you think, what, what would you guess that our most consumed article for 2020 would be? Uh, the pain and training article. just cause I see that one linked like constantly, which is cool. Yeah. Well, you're number two. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our number one article was the beginner prescription, which is our kind of free version of like how to exercise uh, if you're new to training, which is promising. That's good. That means that people are like reading it. Which maybe, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't go through and see how many how many seconds they spend on that page. <laughs> yeah, but the uh, pain and training what do article is our second most viewed. And then our at home, you know, how to exercise at home was our third most, which I, again, I feel like is good because um, a lot of the free content we put out is geared towards like public health improvement, um, either directly to like people, gen pop stuff, or also to like help either clinicians or exercise professionals or other people involved in the industry to like, you know, have some more resources. So it seems like I mean, we had 3 million unique visitors in 2020, which is, uh, pretty good it seems that probably some of them at least read the article well i hope so <laughs> <laughs> you know i'll keep doing these instagram lives and uh if i keep getting the same questions that are clearly answered in some of these articles it, uh, either i'll need to start promoting these articles more like spending more on like facebook ads or instagram ads or something or we just need to accept that nobody's reading our articles if they're longer than a thousand words yeah, that that's uh, you know likely to be the case. I think that there's some some threshold beyond which the overwhelming majority of readership may may drop off. And so you know, I mean, I think that we've shifted the strategy a little bit as far as either making them shorter or breaking things up or delivering it in the newsletter and then maybe expanding upon that later on or delivering the content across multiple different avenues, be it newsletter, article, video, podcast, you know, et cetera, um, to kind of attack people's uh, you know, ears and or eyes from multiple angles. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to put it in their brain hole. Yes. Uh, 
so the question is for this injury article that we have we're working on it's basically like what are the actual risk factors for injury the connection between technique and injury risk etc do we actually publish the article which is likely to be you know 30,000 words or do we just write the executive summary and put that up yeah, I think on the website is where the executive summary should go. And then perhaps it, you know, separately could be published the full thing for people who want to nerd out on that or the sec- the full article could go someplace else. It could be submitted for like actual publication, publication, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yep. There's more work to do. Okay. Now personal best of list. All right, Austin, what was your best training related moment in 2020? I feel like I know what it is, but you might surprise me. Yeah, I mean, this past year had, uh, I'd say, a lot of ups and downs in, in training. And I think we're both at the points in our training career where, like, true, true PRs, particularly 1RMs, are few and far between. <laughs> I think the main one that I had this year was the 720 deadlift, which was a fairly satisfying moment. Um, there have been handfuls of other kind of rep PRs and stuff like that here and there uh, uh, throughout the year. Um, additionally, you know, the, uh, optimism that has, uh, emerged towards the end of this year, the past couple months with my, uh, with my left elbow getting back towards, uh, feeling, feeling good again. Um, uh, not quite hundred percent, but, but, uh, I think we're probably getting there, but yeah, I mean, if I had to look back, I'd say that deadlift was, um, pretty satisfying and, and, uh, you know, I, I frequently look back at those kinds of moments and, uh, uh, say, you know, if I had approached my, uh, beginner self, uh, 10 years ago <laughs> when I was, you know, squatting 150 pounds and looking at the guy in the gym who was, you know, front squatting 315 and thought he was like a God. And I told myself, Hey, if you just like stick with this, you're going to you know pull 720 in like 10 years. You think you can do that? I'd be like, I don't fucking believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. How many plates, how many plates is that? Yeah. Right. 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 So, but here we are. So, you know, we'll see what the next decade has to come. Maybe by the next 10 years, I'll pull 725. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I actually don't know. I mean, 2020 was interesting in that I had signed up for three different meets and all of them got canceled. And I'm, I usually don't PR in the gym just historically. I mean, if I have PR'd in the gym, but like my, for example, my best ever squat is at a, is at a meet. And then up until this last year, my best ever deadlift was in a meet. I mean, it just felt like I pulled it casually in training. So all the meets were canceled, uh, that I signed up for this year, which is a bummer. Uh, but I did have some really good training for each of them. And like, so probably it's a tie for three different things, one for each lift. Uh, I had squatted 606, uh, so 275 kilos in knee sleeves at like an eight or eight and a half. It was just like a top single and it was casual. I mean, it maybe was a, you know, okay, maybe it was a nine. I don't know, but it wasn't hard. Probably the strongest you've been on the squat, like in your life on any one particular day, you think? Yeah. Yeah, like I felt like if you wanted to load, uh, I felt like I, I could have potentially squatted probably like 290, you yeah, know, at like sure. a limit, which would have been sick. But, you know, I just thought I had a meet coming up. So yeah, I didn't, sure. didn't do it, but it was still was a PR. Uh, bench press, I had uh, that 430 close grip was uh, pretty good. <laughs> it was the same day you pulled 720. We were at Iron Iron Asylum. Yeah. So my best ever bench was 440, and then 430 close grip, which was not a limit. Again, I felt like, cool, we got a meet coming up. This is gonna be great. But, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my deadlift, I didn't actually hit anything like super heavy for a single, but I pulled 300 for five, which 
It's pretty good. I mean, 661 for, you know, the pound oriented folks. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Somebody on Twitter was like, we were having this technique discussion, technique injury risk thing. And they was like, I bet the the collective squat total in this thread is 135. <laughs> and, and and it was like myself and, and Dr. Ray and Greg Lehman and, um, you know, a handful of other people who I respect their opinions or whatever. And I was like, my best squats, you know, 285 and my best deadlift is 335. And then I realized that I should have just said pounds. So I deleted <laughs> the tweet and I wrote back in pounds. That it was <laughs> yes. So anyway, all right. What is your best non-training related moment of 2020? This one was tougher, uh, I think, because most of the year was fairly limited as far as like the things that we've been doing, able to do. Um, looking back, I mean, I feel like I made some, uh, had some satisfying moments and, and kind of progress in my professional life. Um, you know, at this point, uh, a little over three years out from, uh, residency training and, and really I'd say feeling like I'm kind of on my feet in my professional life in the hospital. And as an educator, I uh, got my, uh, uh, pr- uh, professorship appointments, uh, done, which was cool. I've had some very satisfying, uh, rewarding moments with my uh, students, with my learners that I teach, and even with some patients, um, both uh, in the hospital setting as well as some of the telemedicine folks that I that I work with. We've had some folks um, who I've worked with who've had you know long term persistent back pain issues or other lifestyle issues, be it like alcohol issues or sleep issues, obesity, things like that that we've made a lot of progress on. And I just look back and kind of collectively. Uh, feel like I've had a lot of uh, rewarding and, and satisfying uh, progress on that front. So I don't think I can necessarily point to one singular uh, moment over the course of the year, but um, feeling good about the the direction things are heading on that front. Well, I mean, basically what I heard is that you just told me your whole life was very rewarding in 2020. So very, that's great to hear, Austin. That's, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my best non-training related moment. Oh, I know exactly what it was. Oh my gosh. All right. So if you've been living under a rock, then you don't know that I I've taken up golf in the past year. Uh, I started playing in when I moved to San Diego. Uh, so that was the summer of 2019. So now, you know, I've been playing for a little over a year and a half and late, uh, late summer of 2020, I broke par for the first time. Now, if you don't know anything about golf, you get X amount of strokes per hole. And then if you go over that, you, that's, that's a bogey or double bogey if it's two strokes or one stroke. Uh, and so and if you if you use the correct amount of strokes, that's a par. And if you use less than the allotted amount of strokes, well, you're under par. And uh, I shot a 71 on a par 72 course. It's a full-size course, plays just under 7,000 yards. And uh, let me tell you, there was some drama because – I was one under going into the back nine. One under again means I'm one stroke under par. I'm having the round of my life. I'm having an out of body experience. Like, oh my gosh, it might it might happen. And then on the number eleven and number twelve, I went double double. I mean, I double bogeyed them. I was two strokes over par on both. So I went from one under to now three over. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I just threw away the round of my life. It's over. A little catastrophic thinking, but I pulled it together. And I finished off the last four holes, four birdies in a row, which never happens. But I don't it, look, man, it was 
it was, it was some, again, out of body experience. I have no idea how that happened. It all came together. And uh, that was my best non-training related moment is very, you know, it was all about me, which I <laughs> think is fine. And, uh, yeah. So if you don't, if you don't play golf, if you're not interested in golf, sorry for the last 45 seconds, but I wanted to flex and, uh, well done. And yes, well, yes. Good job. Uh, all right. Austin, what do you think our best seminar that we did in 2020 was? We didn't do a lot of them. Yeah, that's the thing. We didn't know. do very many. We did, uh, what, San Diego, I think in February. I can't remember where we were in January. Miami. Miami. And then we did Boston, Chicago. Was that anything it? else? Just those four? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't know. What do you think between those four? If we had to pick ones. I think, I think San Diego was probably the best. Uh, only because, so like, obviously the people at each one of the seminars were great. Uh, and I was super, we're super fortunate to have done any in 2020, but like there were people who had never lifted before at all in San Diego and like, and that were older. And I, for, for whatever reason, I find that just, it's, it's inspiring in a way that doesn't translate well to Instagram, <laughs> which it's like actually cool. Like, wow, you're, you know, uh, you, later on in life, you decided to like, to take charge of your health in this perspective and then you you sought out expertise and it happened to be us which is awesome and i get to witness like that was just super cool um so that and just being you know my hometown like where we're at like i thought i thought that was a really a really cool seminar yeah i i remember some of the folks who you're talking about there and we've had some at other seminars i remember last time when we were in seattle we had somebody there as well it was his first time i actually recorded a video of him overhead pressing the training bar because it was his first uh, first time ever doing that movement. I agree. Those are pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Uh, particularly these people often have, uh, you know, underlying medical issues or some, you know, uh, additional kind of motivation. Sometimes their kids bring them to the seminar to, cause maybe the kids already follow us or something like that. Uh, they're adult children, I should say, not kids, kids, but, um, yeah. So, so I agree that that's a, that's a pretty cool thing to see. I mean, I think, uh, Traveling to any of these places, as you said, we were fortunate to do any of them, and they're kind of continue to be on hold uh, for now, probably until the latter half of, of the this uh, coming year. But uh, traveling to any of these places is a privilege, and it's a lot of fun uh, to do to to check out these different places. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, what is the best article or book you've read in two thousand twenty? Uh, so this one was tough as well. I read a fair amount of books, uh, in 2020, either read or listened to, um, a lot of them end up being audiobooks because of my frequent, uh, six hour drives to and from, uh, Louisiana to visit, uh, visit my wife. Um, so I ended up, uh, reading, I'll just name a few books that I read and then kind of give a few picks, I guess. So, um, read a book called, uh, the coddling of the American mind by height. I don't know if you've, have you read that one? No, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, I read The Great Influenza, a book called Strangers in Their Own Land that was recommended to me by our friend uh, Alan Flanagan, uh, Being Wrong, Overdiagnosed, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, uh, The Anatomy of Fascism, and and A Bottle of Rum. Uh, so those are those. that's a lengthy and eclectic list of, of books that I read. I didn't I don't think I read any books that were like kind of training related uh, this year. Um but uh, out of those, I'd say, you know, I can pick maybe one medical oriented one and one non-medical. And I'd say that uh, probably the coddling of the American mind is uh, one that's up there for, for non-medical reads. And then uh, probably either the great influenza or uh, the emperor of all maladies for medically oriented books that were, that were 
particularly good reads. So, yeah, uh, I think my favorite book that I read in 2020, at least I think it was 2020, was Talking to Strangers. Yeah, I feel like that was last year, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like it was last year too, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it's either that or Stuart Ritchie's Science Fiction, um, which is basically. A, a detailed analysis of like all the ways in which scientific research can go wrong. It's kind of an interesting way to like think about what, what these studies that we're reading actually mean and like putting them into context from like, how could this be wrong? How could this be biased? How could this be, you know, it's just a, like a nice reminder, which yeah. I, and really accessible. So I like that. And then my favorite article uh, is one that I read recently. And again, since our citation count on this nutrition book is rapidly climbing, I've been reading a lot the book on the uh, or this this article on the evolution of body fat by Speakman. Uh, John Speakman is this British biologist. He basically was one of the, the first people to start talking about um, set points and in different things. And so this article about the evolution of body fat uh, set points is. I fascinating. So it's from 2018 and I'll give you the gist and you, sh you should read this article. If you're it, it, even casually curious about this stuff, the idea is that b human body fat exists between a, uh, a lower and an upper set point. The lower set point is effectively exist. It exists because to reduce the risk of starvation or like death from, you know, illness induced anorexia, which is a thing that happens when you get sick. And even though your metabolic rate has increased, your appetite has decreased. So you need some like energy reserves. Uh, and so the idea is you don't die from that stuff and you, so you can go on to reproduce. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the evolutionary drive for that. And then the upper bound would exist to reduce the risk of predation, like, you know, getting eaten by a lion or whatever hunted people back in the day, you know, um, the idea is that since our predatory risk has effectively been completely removed, that the selection for different upper, uh, set points become is under more like these more genetic controls, which wi very wildly, and since it's not being selected for, you have a huge range of upper level set points that exist in the population which is exactly what we see. So anyway, in any case, that's like the most interesting article with the obvious bias that I've recently read it. And so it's fresh on my mind. And so if you would have asked me this in, in March, maybe my answer is different, but okay. Uh, and then this is the thing that people ask us all the time. What is something you changed your mind on in 2020? Uh, yeah, so I, I had to give this one a little bit of thought, but then it quickly became apparent to me that there was a large and glaringly obvious thing that I changed my mind on. Uh, uh, again, the obvious um, kind of central event of the year has been the, the pandemic. And from early on, like March, April timeframe, uh, people were already discussing the need for a vaccine. And there were a bunch of uh, folks discussing, you know, how that process might play out, the the time frame for a vaccine, and and some folks were uh, putting out messages around it that I thought were extremely optimistic, such as having um, a vaccine ready before the end of the year or something like that. 
Um, and that was something that early on I found to be very unlikely and something that I did not necessarily expect to, to play out. But here we are, sure enough, uh, uh, it did. It turns out that there was more to that process than I had considered at the time. And in, in particular, you know, this is stuff we discussed in our, back, in our uh, podcast on the vaccine. Namely, the type of technology that was going to be used for it was not one that I was, you know, thinking of at that time when I had that idea and knowing that that technology had been, you know, getting worked on and researched and stuff like that for a while, going back to the first SARS, uh, uh, you know, outbreak and, and even before that with respect to the use of uh, mRNA vaccines, that stuff was not on my mind. And that led to me, you know, uh, feeling the way I did at the time. Now knowing, uh, you know, more about the way the process played out, looking at the data and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, as we uh, uh, said in the podcast on the topic, um, that was something that definitely changed my mind. And I'm now uh, very much in favor of it. I've already received the the first dose of the, uh, of the Pfizer vaccine myself. I know Moderna is out there and being administered. Um, and I think the AstraZeneca one got approved in the UK. I don't, it's not approved yet in the US. And uh, I'll be getting my second dose um, on Friday the 8th. Uh, you know, next week. Um, so yes, that that's probably the biggest thing where I at first I had a moderately strong opinion that it was going to be very unlikely before the end of the year. Um, and that's something that uh, definitely got flipped on its head by the time, you know, uh, the process all played out and got to see the evidence and see what happened with it. Yeah, I, I just don't remember, like what I how I felt or what I thought, other than I read that I don't know if you remember that original Imperial paper about like, yeah, the Imperial how, College London model. Yeah, and I remember reading that. I was in Arizona at the time, basically hiding from quarantine so I could play golf. Uh, and I was reading the article, and I was like, "Damn it, this isn't <laughs> gonna be over until we have a vaccine." Yeah, you know. And then I was like, "That's gonna take a while." <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, but I do. I think. The thing that's fresh on my mind, uh, at least, and, and something that I definitely knew know that I had a relatively, or at least a much stronger opinion upon before, and now I'm more open to the idea that I was just wrong, or at least not completely right. Uh, just the connection between the lean body mass and strength, like muscular size and muscular strength. And uh, Lenicky's review was pretty important in that. And, I, and then when I went down the rabbit hole of that particular topic, it seems like a reasonable hypothesis that muscular strength and muscular size are less re- correlated than we think. Um, and, you know, I think people who are listening to this, they're like, wait, what? And it's like, well, think about it. If your program is designed to make you bigger and stronger and it makes you bigger and stronger, you're naturally going to tie the two things together. But what if the program was just designed to make you bigger but not stronger, like blood flow restriction training? It do, you don't get stronger with that. Or what if the program is designed to just make you stronger, not bigger? Um, so it'd be really low volume, high, you know, higher intensity stuff. And, and, you know, I think people just, and myself included, have like a, a previously placed a large importance on muscle cross-sectional area. And I think it's probably still related to some extent. Um, I just don't know how strongly I feel about it anymore. Anyway, it's in the book. Okay, 2021, what's happening next as we wrap this guy up? Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to do some seminars. At some point, <laughs> it's, probably, <hopefully>. it's, it's <laughs> probably not going to be till Q2. I think it's going to be 
that's probably going to be when we do it. And the idea is, and we were previously doing seminars every month. And I think now what we'll probably do are like super seminars where uh, we get some additional staff to come in and we hold, you know, we have host more people and then we do fewer of them. Um, but the idea is we have more people there. Obviously, this is going to require people to either be vaccinated or, you know, otherwise, you know, we have some level of herd immunity going on in the population where you could actually gather large groups. But uh, that's the idea. Rather than traveling every month, um, we because your schedule is crazy and um, I think it's probably more pro- a productive use of our time if we can have larger seminars. It also helps like the community too, because people go there to like meet other like-minded individuals. And it's like, all right, well, if we can like increase the number of people we have per seminar, it's a good idea. But I think our first one's going to be at Alan Thrall's gym. So if you, if you also have a crush on Alan Thrall, look out for that. I think it's going to be in May or June provided. Provided uh, things the, improve. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, you know, maybe we had the same conversation in 2021. Yeah. Um, okay. We're gonna probably expand some of these consult services to do. So we already we already have the the pain and rehab consults that you know uh, get excellent feedback, excellent reviews. People are people are typically very satisfied with what they get out of working with our rehab team. I think we are uh, super proud of the the team that we've been able, been able to pull together on the rehab side. They're uh, in my opinion, and I think in your opinion as well, uh, best in the business as far as uh, what they do to, to guide people back towards their uh, goal activities from from pain issues. And uh, I think uh, you should seek them out if, uh, if you're dealing with something that you're looking for help with. Yep. I like that. Uh, in addition to our form check stuff. So like we get a lot of form check stuff on our Facebook group, which you should join, by the way, if you're not yet a member. Um, and I think what people are really looking for when they are getting a form check is like a more thorough analysis of like, Hey, uh, what I, what they're doing, how that plays into their program, uh, what they should do moving forward and like a, a suggested plan for follow-up, right? Like a more comprehensive take rather than just like, you know, rate my form and people are like, Oh, you should go lower on a squat or you should arch harder. It's like, okay, like that's a very superficial level analysis. It may not necessarily be wrong, but like how to achieve those things and how does that fit within a person's goals and their movement patterns, et cetera, et cetera. So we're doing these form checks now where we have one of our coaches actually thoroughly review a technique video that you submit. And if your video that you submitted is not adequate, we'll make take another one rather than just like, yeah, well, this is what we got and here's how we're going to review it. So I think that's super useful for folks. And uh, yeah, we'll keep rolling out other stuff. Uh, e-learning products. Yes. So that low back pain online course that uh, Dr. Ray uh, 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 put out has been great. We've been getting excellent feedback on that. It's like if you want to learn about low back pain and like how to like what it is, why it occurs to the extent that that's knowable and then what to do about it, that's the course. Yep. And so, you know, if you're a casual exercise fan, maybe this isn't for you unless you're really are curious about this stuff. And I can make the case since a lot of people are going to experience low back pain, maybe you'd want to know this stuff. But certainly if you're an exercise professional, a healthcare professional, or anybody else who deals with patients or clients who have low back pain, this is for you. And uh, that feed, we've got an excellent feedback there. We'll be doing more courses, uh, more products like that, like our coaching course, um, and potentially some of our seminar material. Depending we'll on, we're working on getting some CME and CEU accreditation as well. Cause, uh, 
I am fully prepared to put out a ton of medical stuff since that's what I teach um, as it pertains to exercise and training. But I think we would want to have uh, CME credits available for folks to to take advantage of uh, for that to happen. Yep. Agreed. And uh, all right, fine. what everybody asks, here's what people really want to know as we wrap up this podcast episode. What like what PRs are you planning for in 2021, bro? <laughs> I think that uh, I don't know that neither of us sp- really plan for specific PRs. I mean, we always have like, you know, numbers in mind and things like that that we want to accomplish. Me personally, at this point, um, I don't really uh, care about uh, competition at the moment. I'll say there may at some point be a, you know, something that lights a fire under me again to get back on the platform. But at the moment, I just enjoy training more than anything else. And I don't really care about doing a meet. Regardless, PRs are still fun to chase, whether it's 1RM or, or rep PRs. Um, if I could, uh, you know, beat that 720 deadlift PR at some point in the year, that'd be cool. I don't know. If, we'll see if that happens. I would uh, also like to beat that 500 for 10 squat set that I did. Um, I also anticipate I will probably spend a bit more time developing some other movements um, just because, again, I don't necessarily uh, plan on entering a meet anytime soon. So maybe uh, I might actually train um, like high bar or uh, and or sumo pulling as some Whoa. of the more primary things for a little while just just because I can uh, and because uh, it's all good. I like that. I mean, it's blasphemy, but okay. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> if my bench could get anywhere back to its former glory, that'd be cool too. <laughs> so beat that bench 430. So if I could uh, get anywhere close to that or, or beat it, you know, 440, 200 kilos is a sweet milestone. But, you know, uh, we'll see. I'm just going to take my time with that. Yep. I keep, I have these these aspirations of 300, 205, 350, uh, which right now seem unlikely. I think you're going to have gain, if they, gain some weight to do that, probably. <laughs> yeah, but if there was another meet coming up, you know, and gain some weight, probably, and maybe, I don't know. Um, I'd really just like to, I think I have some, or at least last year, at, at a couple different points, I had an absolute squat PR, like all time in in me, uh, and I would like to have a similar thing for my, and I think I had a similar thing for my bench press. So my last deadlift PR was in 2019, was a 738. I think 750 would be cool, but, um, I just have to get motivated to actually do it in the gym. If there's not a meet, you see what I'm saying? So it's like, you just need me to pull 739 and then, right. Yes. Correct. I'll pull 750. <laughs> in yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, yeah. So we'll see. Anyway, that's our 2020 slash 2021, you know, recap slash preview. Austin, anything else you want to nothing else? That's it. All right. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in to Barbell Medicine Radio, uh, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, hey, wherever you're getting this from, if it's on your smartphone, tablet, uh, I guess people don't tune in on their computers anymore, whatever. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast and uh, helps us continue to put out more free content for you guys. That's super helpful. Again, this episode was uh, recorded, produced by just just us. It's just it's just us. There's no like team, and uh, we'll catch you here on Marble Medicine Radio next Monday and every Monday. See ya.